And, um, we're looking at the events of the very first Pentecost in Acts 1 and 2. And um, hopefully, as you, you know, if you don't know it, just by our reading today, Pentecost is this moment in history where Christianity goes from being a group of timid, afraid, behind closed doors believers and becomes a missionary movement reaching out across the globe. And when a change like that happens, when a transformation like that, that happens, you have, you have to at least consider, how did that happen? I mean, you know, think of a company or an idea, you know, a, a meme or here a movement. How does something go from local to global? Or think of an individual, somebody like you know, Peter here. How does he go from being cowardly, denying Jesus publicly, to being courageous and proclaiming him publicly? Or think of a group of people like these disciples. How do they go from being timid to bold? Because none of that happens for no reason whatsoever, does it? So the question is, how do you explain it? And the New Testament explains it with a single word, and it's the word power. Power. Okay, that thing, power, the pursuit of which is causing so much division in our societies at the moment. Power. And yet the thing that none of us can do without, that every single one of us needs, if you are to live truly free, if, if you are to genuinely flourish personally, if you're going to live free of the stuff that can strangle the life out of you. Okay, so we're going to look at four things to do with power. We're going to look at the problem with power. We're going to look at the nature of this power. We're going to look at our need for power, for this power. And then how can you get it? Okay, the problem with power, the nature of this power, our need for this power, and how you can get it. First point then, the problem with power. Okay, look at chapter 1, verse 6. So when they, the disciples, had come together, they asked him, Jesus, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Now, you may not see it immediately, but they're asking about power. Okay, because just before this, Luke tells us that after Jesus' resurrection, up until now, Jesus has spent his time with the disciples, verse 3, speaking about the kingdom of God. And what is the kingdom? If it's not the rule and the reign and the reach of the power of God. And yet, what Jesus means by that and what these disciples are thinking about that are totally different. John Calvin, the great reformer, he said that if you look at their question, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Calvin said, there are as many errors in this question as words. Why? Well, why that critique? Okay, well, look firstly at the word restore. Because if you've got a painting by one of the great masters that's been neglected in a garage somewhere and it is in bad shape, but an expert gets hold of it and sets about restoring it, they are putting that painting back the way it was, the way it was supposed to be, the way it was always meant to be. They're restoring it. 
Or imagine that some valuable object is stolen and the police catch the thieves and they retrieve the object and they restore it to the one it was taken from, the one it was stolen from. They are returning it to its rightful owner. Okay, so when the disciples talk of restoring, they're thinking, Jesus, are you going to return the kingdom to Israel? Are you going to put things back the way they were and should always have been? Are you going to restore her power and her political independence? So when they're thinking power and kingdom, they are thinking borders, territory, and geopolitical clout. Then look at the word Israel. Because it's not just borders or politics they're thinking, but race and ethnicity. When they think kingdom and power, they are thinking nationalistically. They're thinking ethnic Israel. And then there's a the phrase, at this time. Because they are looking for Jesus to do this work of restoration now. So for them, power, kingdom, power, means borders, race, liberation from Rome and its oppressive structures, and an us-against-them mentality, which, if you think about it, is not a million miles away from the way people tend to conceive of power today. You know, one night last week, uh, we went out for drinks as a family, and we ended up in a bar, let's just say it draws an alternative crowd, okay? This is quite accidental. And on the hand dryer, just to let you know, okay, on the hand dryer in the bathrooms was a sticker saying, smash the patriarchy. What is that? What is that? What is that if that is not a call to power? Exercised by one group against another. And it may not be ethnic, but it is certainly tribal, us against them. And it is coming from a desire to be free from what they think of as oppression. Or take our polarized political landscape. Why, why the polarization? Because there is a power struggle going on over who should have the power and how that power should be used and on behalf of whom. Or take any of the military conflicts that are going on around the world at the moment and you see power being used to rewrite borders or assert one ethnic group or culture over another. And if in their day, the disciples were asking Jesus whether he was going to do it all now, in ours, the, the use of force, the use of military power, or just the ratcheting up of angry words tells us that people think, hey, there's no time for reasoned debate. There is no time for reasoned argument. That takes way too long. We want the kingdom and the power, and we want it now. So that's a bigger picture. What about the smaller picture? What about the picture of our own lives? Because while we may not think in terms of our own lives, in terms of borders and territories, what about boundaries? What about the desire for some sanity or order or stability in our chaotic lives, which some boundaries would give us? And we might not think in terms of securing borders, but what about the desire for security? 
What about something that can carry us through the storms of life, that can give us the security we want, something that we can depend on? And we might not think in terms of external powers oppressing us, but what about the internal stuff that's going on in our own hearts that does exactly that? Those habits that become controlling or the sin that you can't get free from, these things that can be like a black hole that suck all of our life into them, that have a power of their own. I mean, aren't there times in your life when you feel like you need a power greater than what is controlling you? Or think about your fears. Maybe you're a fearful person. And think about the power that fear can control over you, that can exert over you as the cold chains of your fear wrap themselves around your heart. Wouldn't you want a power that sets you free from those chains? And if here the disciples were after a renewal of national Israel and for Israel to finally enter into her calling and to achieve what she was designed to be, isn't there sometimes a sense in which you desire an inner empowerment that enables you to be all you were meant to be and achieve what you want to achieve and, and live the kind of life you were supposed to have? The problem is, is that the way our current culture, maybe we tend to think of power, has no power to solve our problems out there or in here. Because it has no power to solve the problem under every problem, which is the problem of the human heart. Use power to overturn oppression, and the oppressed become oppressors. Enforce boundaries or borders, and which tribe is in and which tribe is out, and divisions and conflict escalate. Seek and express the inner empowerment to be who I want to be, to be who I think I'm supposed to be. And what happens is that we become ever more self-focused. We turn in on ourselves and our lives diminish rather than grow. So we need a different sort of power from a different kind of source from the power that the world offers us. We need a power that is good and a power that is from outside of us. So look at verse 8, where Jesus says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So the power that Jesus is promising is a power that comes from outside and comes upon our hearts and transforms our hearts. And rather than advancing some ideology of left or right, this power is going to witness to a person, to Christ. And rather than you being able to look at a map and go, oh, there's the kingdom of God, that bit in pink or in red, rather than it being tied to one ethnic group or political tribe, this power is going to be for everybody question is, what is that power? Second point, the nature of this power. What, what this power is. Okay, look at chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. 
When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Now, the, the word that the Old Testament uses for spirit is the same word for breath or for wind. Okay, so as the sound of this wind fills the house where they are, it is the sound of God's spirit filling their hearts. Except, why the mighty rushing wind? Why not a breath? If the words mean the same, if, you, if spirit means spirit means spirit, breath, or wind, why go for the wind option? Why not go for the gentle breath? Because in the Old Testament, if you remember the story of Elijah, when Elijah has his dramatic encounter with God, we're told that God did not appear to him in the violent wind, or in the fire, or in the earthquake, these, these manifestations of power that preceded God's coming. God appeared to Elijah as a gentle whisper, in a still small voice, in a breath. So why not choose that option here? Why the mighty rushing wind? Why the banging doors and the rattling windows and the shaking walls? Well, because Elijah, he was, he was broken. Elijah was a broken man. And he was in need of a gentle touch. He was in need of the gentle, light as a feather touch of God's spirit and God's presence. These disciples are outnumbered and they are outgunned. And they have the powers of Rome and the powers of the Jewish religious leaders ranged against them. They don't need a whisper. They need a hurricane. They need to know that the power that is in them is greater than the power out there in the world. So they experience what it is like to be in the wind tunnel of God's untamable power. The wind tunnel of his spirit. But there's a problem with untamable powers, isn't there? They can become destructive. And they can consume and destroy the very thing that they are trying to protect or to promote. But not this power. Verse 3. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. Fire. Think about some of those Old Testament appearances of God. Think about God appearing to Moses in the burning bush, the burning bush. Think about God coming down on Sinai in smoke and fire. Think about how God led Israel through the dark desert nights by a pillar of fire. Or think about how God appeared to Abraham as he promised that I will take the curse of the covenant upon myself. I am going to keep my promises. And he manifests himself as a burning cauldron. Or think about how he appears to Isaiah or Ezekiel the prophets in his blazing glory. Throughout the Old Testament, God keeps on manifesting his presence by fire. But it's a fire 
that does not destroy the thing it alights on. So this is not the destructive power of a mob. It's not the destructive power of an ideology. It's not even them trying to summon up all their inner strength to change their situation and express their true selves, which is ultimately self-destructive. This is the sign of the purity and the promise-keeping power of God's presence. Verse 4. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit as God came and took up residence in their hearts. What kind of impact could that kind of power have on a life? What kind of impact could that have on a group of people? Third point, our need for that power. Okay, firstly, we need a power that breaks down and builds up. You see, in Genesis, it's very interesting, in Genesis, the account of the Tower of Babel, it's like the mirror image, it's like the inverse of what is going on here at Pentecost. Because back then in Genesis, God had called humanity to spread out, fill the earth. So what did they do? They all clumped together. They stayed where they were. Why? Because there's power in numbers. And they set about building a tower whose top would stretch up to the clouds. And they have a clear intention, Genesis 11 verse 4. Let us make a name for ourselves. Let us make much of ourselves. Let us express and project an image of ourselves out there into the world. And in response to limit their power to do more harm, God confuses their languages. Now turn forward to Pentecost. And instead of the disciples climbing their way to heaven, making themselves God, God the Spirit comes down. And instead of confusion, verse 4, they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And whatever, whatever else the gift of tongues is in the rest of the New Testament here, I think there's no doubt this is speaking in foreign languages. And they spill out onto the streets And the crowd that is gathered from across the Roman world for the Feast of Pentecost hears them and goes, verses 8 to 11, how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. What I want you to see is that the power of the Spirit is the opposite of the kind of power that divides people along racial or ethnic lines. And instead of putting up walls between people, it breaks those walls down. Now, sure, you might say, they're all still Jews. Not much ethnic diversity here. Sure. But fast forward to chapter 8, and the Spirit falls upon the Samaritans, the accursed Samaritans, Fast forward to chapter 10, and the Spirit comes upon the Gentiles, those dog-like Gentiles. Because the power of Christ doesn't just break down dividing walls, it builds up friendships and fellowship and community across divisions. And it doesn't just have a dynamite explosive power to break down walls, It has a power that unites and bonds. Like those superglues in the glue and 
sticky tape aisle at Jumbo, which promise this can take the strain. This is a bond that you cannot break. This can take the weight. Do you know what? In our fractured societies, we need the power of the spirit that does that more than ever, that creates a different kind of community. As Luke says in verse 4, they were all filled. None of them were left out. This isn't a power reserved for the elite in their ivory towers. As Peter says in verse 38, for this promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. It is for anyone who responds to Christ's call to come. Come, enter the kingdom. So we need a power that breaks down and one that builds up. Secondly, we need a power that saves. And Peter stands up in this crowd and he starts preaching from the prophet Joel, verse 17. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Now earlier this week I was reading a book that had a line in it. She was quoting somebody else and I, she didn't say who, uh, which said, one of the marks of maturity is connecting the present moment to all the moments to come. Here Peter does the reverse, doesn't he? He connects their present moment and your present moment to all the moments that are past, to the prophets of hundreds of years previously, and to the great river of God's redemption that is flowing through history and his plan to right all wrong. It's why Peter finishes his quote from Joel in verse 21 with, And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Saved from what? Saved from what? What's the enemy that threatens to destroy your life or their life? Our current culture would say it's those people over there. It's the left or the right. It's the patriarchy or it's the woke brigade. Jesus has a different enemy in his sights. You see, when Cain, back in Genesis, is losing his battle against anger and jealousy, God warns him, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you. Cain, your sin, Cain, your sin, is like a lion on its haunches, and it is ready to pounce the moment you open the door to it. Cain, your sin is like a viper coiled, ready to spring and to bite. That's your enemy, and you are its prey, and it is at your door waiting to take you down. You see, Jesus' power is not like petrol on the fire of our accusations against all of these other people. Jesus's power is like a bright shining light shining into the dark recesses of our hearts, having us confront our issues. And as we do, we discover, man, it's me who's failed. It's me who has failed to live and to love as I should. That's why Luke tells us in verse 37 that the crowd were cut to the heart and said, what should we do? That's why Peter replies, verse 38, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness 
of your sins. But it's not one-sided, is it? Because if Christianity critiques the idea that what is wrong with the world is everybody else and these systems of structural oppression, and instead Christianity says, no, we are all individually responsible. If Christianity critiques that wrong idea that it's everybody else's fault, it's structural oppression, it also critiques the idea that the problem is all individual. Verse 40. And with many other words, Peter bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. A generation that was highly religious. A generation whose civil authorities, Rome, thought they had the moral high ground. They were the best civilization going. And yet a generation that had crucified the Son of God. So Christ's power doesn't just save us from our sins. It offers us rescue and redemption from the sins of others. You see, look back at your past. Just cast an eye back over your past. And you can probably see those things that you shouldn't have done, but you did. And those things that you should have done, but you didn't do. But maybe you can also see those things that were done to you by others. Or maybe you can see how you were dragged down by others in ways that you now regret. And Peter is saying, Christ's power doesn't just save you from your sin, it offers you salvation and rescue from the sins done against you. It doesn't just save you, it heals you. Towards the end of Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, Aragorn, the rightful king, comes to the houses of healing. And because he's the king, he's got the power of healing. And he goes from sickbed to sickbed, healing and restoring the sick and injured. And he says to one of the warriors, walk no more in the shadows, but awake. And Christ, the true king, comes to every one of us and says, hey, come out from the shadows and live. Thirdly, we need a power for joy. The disciples spill out onto the streets and Luke says the crowd was, verse 12, amazed and perplexed while others mocked, saying, verse 13, they are filled with new wine. Why do you think they were drunk? Because they're not fighting, are they? It's not like the English after a premiership match. Okay, they're not fighting. And it can't just be because they are speaking all these other languages, because if that was it, they would have just mingled in with the crowd. They would have looked like everybody else. Something else must have left the crowd thinking, what have they been drinking? What have they been smoking? What was it? It's their joy. Don't you want that? I mean, couldn't the world do with a bit more joy and a bit less anger? Because whether it is the fight for political power or whether it is self-righteous religious moralism, both of those can make you angry. But the power of Jesus doesn't. Jesus' power fills your heart with joy and in ways that other people notice. We need that power. Fourthly, 
We need a power for worship, a power that takes our eyes off of ourselves and puts them elsewhere. Verse 11, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. Think back to Babel. What was the problem with Babel? It was a desire to make much of themselves. It was a desire to be someone or something great and to be that apart from God. It's the problem that is lurking under all forms of self-empowerment that put me at the center. And the problem with self-centeredness is that it is like poison to the roots of everything that really matters in life, like friendships and relationships and deep, thick community. But the power of the Spirit does not leave these disciples making much of themselves. Who are they making much of? They're making much of God. And Augustine said that is the key to personal thriving. It's getting the order, of, order right in our hearts of who we're going to make much of, who we are going to love. It's ordering our loves right of what really matters to us. That is the key to flourishing. And Jesus' power reorients your life away from a self-destructive fixation on self and a fixation onto him. If we make ourselves the center of our lives, things get pretty screwy pretty quickly. But make God the center, and everything else begins to fall into place. Now you might say, well, great, yeah, I agree with that, but where do we get that kind of power from? Last point then, just briefly, how to get it. Because every power comes from somewhere, doesn't it? Yeah, the power of a politician comes from the ballot box, or the power of their, the office that they hold. And influencers' power on social media comes from their, from their reach on social media. Where does this power come from? What's the source of a power that can make you joyful rather than angry? That can make you brave rather than timid? that can bring people together rather than divide them, that can cleanse you of your sin and free you from the sins done to you by others, that can cause you to take your eyes off of yourself and to fix them on one far greater. Where does that kind of power come from? Look at verse 23. As Peter says, This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Where does this power come from? Where's the riverhead of this power? It's the weakness of the cross. From the fact that at the cross, Christ bore your sorrow so that you can have his joy. He bore your sin so that you could have his forgiveness. He was separated from the Father so that you could be reconciled to him and to one another. And when you know that the Son of God had to die for you, to save you from your sins, that sure has the power to kill the angry, self-righteous Pharisee that's in every one of us. And as you see the depth of his love for you, it takes your eyes off of yourself 
and it fixes them on him because you think, man, you are amazing. As Paul wrote, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Okay, but then look at verse 32. This Jesus God raised up, and of, all, and of that we all are witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured this out that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. And through his resurrection, Jesus broke the power of sin and death, and he has crushed the serpent's head, the serpent that is coiled at your door. And when he ascended and sat down at God's right hand, he was, what is God's right hand? What was the right hand of a king in the ancient world? The right hand, the right hand of the king <laughs> in the ancient world is the place of power. It's a place where the favored son sits. The son who, could, can, who can administer all of the king's power and authority in his name. And Christ ascends and sits down in that place. And from there, Luke tells us, Jesus poured out the Spirit, pours out the presence and the power of God, pours out the wind and the fire into the disciples' hearts. But not just their hearts. Look again at verse 39. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself, Okay, so forgiveness and joy and unity and humility and courage and worship are on offer to every single one of us. And if you are already a Christian, they're yours. This is your birthright. These are yours in Christ. You don't need to do anything to earn them. We just need to live in the good of them, of what Christ has already done for us. And if you're not yet a Christian, these can be yours. Because as the prophet Joel says in verse 17, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So you too don't need to earn them. You just have to come to Jesus to receive them, to receive the Spirit. We've got to repent and believe and receive. But if it doesn't stop with the disciples, it also doesn't stop with us. Jesus said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses. Witnesses to his death and his resurrection and witnesses to his forgiveness and his joy. So this week, live in the power of the Spirit. Work for the unity of his people. Repent of any sin that he brings to light in your heart. Turn your eyes off of self and start worshipping him. And be attentive to the Spirit's prompting to point others to a much better king, a much better kingdom, and a far greater power. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your Son, the Lord Jesus, who died for us, who rose, who ascended, who sat down and who poured out. And Father, we thank you for your Spirit, 
Father, may we, as your people, increasingly walk in step with him. Lord, may we live in the good of the power that you have poured out, Lord, to make us a different sort of people and to bring your gospel, your good news to the world. Help us this week, Father, to be witnesses to Christ. And in his name we pray. Amen. Amen.